Well, good morning, everybody. Why don't we pray that God would help us understand his word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as a community, we can gather around your word. We thank you that on this Lord's Day, we can remember the resurrection of your son, Jesus, who was crucified for us and who was risen to new life that we might follow. And we pray, Father, that you help us by your spirit to understand Romans chapter 12 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what have we seen this weekend so far? We've been thinking about this topic of love, and what we've seen is that love is a desire to draw near to another through service. And that's manifested in two ways, as we've seen. One of the ways is through the grace of forgiveness and reconciliation. We've also seen that it is manifested in the grace of giving. And so, we've also seen that consumerism can take away our ability to love others. It can take away our ability to give. It can also take away the, uh, the way in which we value people and see them as meaningful individuals where the relationship is worth keeping. But if we just kept it here, the title of this weekend would not be appropriate. If we're serious about holding nothing back, we can't just talk about the grace of forgiveness and the grace of giving because we need to talk about giving God your whole life. If we're serious about holding nothing back, then this talk, we're going to think about how it is that we give our very lives to God in service. And what it means to be a living sacrifice, well, you see this in verse 1. It's a bit of a weird phrase, isn't it? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul is urging his readers to be living sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, in this final talk, what I want to show you is that we as Christians are to give our very lives to God. And the word that describes what this means is indeed service. So would you please come with me to point one now? Point one. Read with me from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. In this chapter, we're picking it up from chapter 12, and the book of Romans was a letter that Paul was writing to the church at Rome. And the reason why verse 1 starts with the word therefore is because in the last three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been spending his time talking about the wondrous mercy of God in bringing Gentiles, non-Jewish people, into the family of God alongside Jews. And so that's why he starts with the word therefore. The overarching goal of what God has done is to bring together a people who will give God true and proper worship. You see, from the very beginning of the Bible, this has been God's goal. He made the world to be a home where he could dwell with humanity in worshipful relationship. That's the whole reason why the world was made. But humans stuffed it up, didn't we, through our sin, through our idolatrous rebellion. And God couldn't dwell in the presence of humanity anymore, because if he did, we would die. The right punishment for our sin, our, our, our rebellion, 
is death. But in God's grace, he called Abraham. He called Abraham to be the one who would receive his blessing, the blessings of a covenant, and would fulfill this original purpose. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel, and he was going to use Abraham to call a nation to himself and to bless all the families on the earth. And this trajectory is further built upon in the Exodus, because in the Exodus, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, and God declares the people a priestly nation, a nation that would worship God in relationship with him. But a lot of us who've grown up in church before know the story there as well, don't we? Because what did Israel do? They stuffed it up again. They worshipped a golden calf, once again showing their idolatrous rebellion. Israel wasn't giving God true and proper worship. And even so, God still instituted the priesthood of Israel, who would worship God by offering sacrifices and working in the tabernacle, which would later become the temple. And God still poured out his Holy Spirit for the first time in the Bible on those people who were building the tabernacle. You see, whenever we see the Holy Spirit being poured out in Scripture, it's always with a view towards directing people's hearts in worship towards God. That's why you see in Judges so many times that the Judges were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's because their job, as imperfect as they were, was to reform the worship of Israel. But as we see in the Old Testament, time and time again, God's people failed to worship God. Their worship was not true and proper. Their sacrifices were not acceptable. And even the ones that were made rightly did not last. None of them had a lasting sacrifice. But then came Jesus, Jesus himself, who tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that the time has come where God is not just going to tell people to worship in this mountain or that mountain. No, God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus dies on the cross, paying the penalty for our rebellion. And he pays the perfect sacrifice that is pleasing, that is lasting, that is eternal. And in God's mercy, Jesus was raised to life. Victory over death. And because of God's grace, in Jesus' death and resurrection, God now gathers a people made up of Jews and Gentiles who can worship God, who do not need to make sacrifices that are not going to be eternal. Because in Christ, that price has already been paid. And that's why Romans chapter 12 verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. You see, in light of this, God victoriously bringing together a people in view of God's mercy, as it says in verse 1. Offer up, this is what Paul says to the Christians, offer up yourselves to God as living sacrifices. See, the sacrifices are living because you don't need to die ever. You don't need to die because that death has been paid for once and for all in Jesus Christ. That's why it's a living sacrifice. But not only that, your life your living sacrifice is meant to be an enduring, continual devotion to God. It means that every part of our life is to be holy and pleasing to God. As a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, your whole life 
is on display before the majesty of God at any given moment. And the only thing that saves us from feeling like that is an intrusion of our lives and is a, is a burden that we cannot possibly bear is that every time you mess up, Jesus has paid for that already. You know, in Christ, you cannot help but please God if you are obeying his perfect will. Because every sin you ever commit has already been paid for by the blood of his son. That's one of the great freedoms of being a Christian. You see, when you sin, God doesn't turn his back towards you, as if he was on a swivel chair, and wait for you to say, God, I'm so sorry, and then he turns back. No, that's Roman Catholic understanding of sin. That is not the Christian biblical teaching of sin. In Christ, there is no condemnation, ever. That's the great assurance we have as God's people. But, okay, so if this is what we're doing, if God has gathered us and we're meant to worship God, but what, what is worship? I've spent the last five minutes using this word worship. What is worship? What does it mean? Well, worship comes from an old word in the English language, meaning worth-ship. Worth-ship. You see, the word worship actually denotes this idea of giving honor and service to something or someone that is worthy. Very simply, worship is giving honor and service to something or someone. And when Christians speak about worship, we're speaking about honoring or serving something or someone, ascribing value and worth to them. When we worship God, we're not giving God worth, we are recognizing His worth. We are saying, look how great God is. Isn't He amazing? Look at what he has done. Look how much he has blessed me. Look how much he has shown me mercy. That's what Christians mean when we talk about worship. Now, in that definition, you might have realized that there seems to be a connection with love. And there is a connection with love. Because you see, if love is a desire to draw near to another through service, and worship is honoring and serving something or someone you think is worthy, then here's the connection. We worship what we love. We worship what we love. That's the connection. And so as Christians who love God, we are to worship Him. That's the only logical output of our love, to worship God. Because worship is our response to what we love. And so, Swag, let me ask you, what are you worshipping? What, what are you giving your life to? What are you honoring and serving? You can answer that question by examining your life and looking at what really takes up your time. But also, you can answer that question by figuring out what gets you angry. Because anger, in the end, is a response when what you love is threatened. If you get cut off in traffic, it might be because, oh, that car is speeding dangerously, and it's a, you know, a danger to citizens, and, and I am angry about that because I love you know, good order and moral society. Or, look, let's be honest, no, how dare you cut me off? I'm now going to be stuck behind a traffic light, right? What is that? That's self-love. That's the reason why we get angry, right? Also because we're speed demons as well, right? But w- when someone frustrates you or you get angry over something, It reveals a love because anger is the only right response we have when what we love is threatened. And so what do you spend your time on? 
if we could look at your timetable. What is your life devoted to? Because that's what you're worshipping. And that is what you love then. And what do you get angry over? Because what you get angry over reveals what you love, and it's probably going to reveal what you worship. But in Christ, Christians are called to give our whole lives to God in honour and service. And we do this because we love Him. And we can be better worshippers of God. The way in which we're meant to worship God is verse 2, right? It's do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed. Discern what God's will is. We're to be transformed, avoiding worldliness, seeking to align our desires and our perceptions with God's good and pleasing and perfect will. This is why we believe in coming to church and hearing God's word faithfully proclaimed. Going to community group and reading God's word together as a community. Listening to sermons, reading God's word ourselves going to conferences. We do all of this and speak the truth in love to one another because we want to be transformed, not conformed to this pattern of this world. Christian, here today, you have been saved for worship. In other words, you've been saved for service. So give yourself to God. Give your entire life to God. Christianity is not compartmentalized to Sunday. Your faithfulness to Jesus should impact every aspect of your life, from the way in which you buy your food to the way in which you go to sleep. Give your whole life to God and say to him, Father, let my life glorify you in everything I do. But how do we do that? How are we meant to do this? Because that, yep, thank you, James, that's good. I want to give my life to God. How do I do it? Well, there are three ways that you can do that. We're here at point two. Give yourself to your sisters and brothers in Christ. Come with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 3 then. Because he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In verse 4 we see that as members of the church we are many. But in verse 3 we also see that none of us should think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Notice that Paul here is not saying that you should think of yourself lowly. That's not what the verse says. He's saying you should think of yourself rightly. Don't think of yourself any higher than you ought. You see, this is one of the great paradoxes of pride, isn't it? Because we think that pride is thinking you're better than everyone. That's not necessarily true, okay? Because the pride could be me thinking I'm better than everyone, but pride can also be thinking that you're worse than everyone. In the midst of God saying you are redeemed and forgiven and loved. You say, no, I'm not forgiven. No, I don't deserve forgiveness. No, I don't deserve love. No, I am dirty. No, I am this. No, I am that. And you're saying your opinion matters more than God's. Humility is thinking of yourself rightly. And in the context of service, it's thinking of yourself 
No more highly than you ought and no more lowly than you ought, especially when it comes to your brothers and sisters. In other words, don't be prideful and don't be arrogant. And as verse 5 says, though we are many, we each belong to each other. You see, as a church family, I want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that as members of this church, you belong to one another? You don't just come to this church, you belong to this church as a family. Do you believe that each and every one of you here who is a member of this church has a part to play in the functioning of this body? You are a body filled with different parts and you have the tremendous privilege of serving one another. Some of you may have heard of the 80-20 rule and it's used in a number of places but when it When it comes to church settings, the 80-20 rule basically says that 80% of the work in a church is done by 20% of the people. And I don't know everything about your church, but I would hazard a guess and say that there are some people who are extremely faithful in their service, but perhaps they may be doing too much. There are some of you who may be doing nothing. Every member has a part to play. Every member has something to do. And in verses 6 to 8, we see some examples of this. You see, there isn't an, a, a cohesive, um, comprehensive list of gifts in Scripture. But let's just focus on a few of these, for example, right? Because the idea here is that every member of God's church can contribute something. Now, I know that you're going to go through spiritual gifts in the future in 1 Corinthians. So if I say anything wrong, I'm sure Pete will correct it, okay? <laughs> But allow me to just say a few general things about spiritual gifts. The first one is this. The gift is to you, but the gift is not for you. Spiritual gifts are given to you, but they are not given for you. Spiritual gifts are given to you, but they're given for the benefit and the building up of the body. Which is why it doesn't make any sense for a person who doesn't go to church to say, what is my spiritual gift? That doesn't make any sense. Because... How can we know unless you are part of a body wherein the gift is building up other people? You know, I I know people who think they have the gift of teaching, but they don't encourage anyone with God's word. Or the gift of evangelism, but they haven't shared the gospel with anyone in months. Gifts are given to you, but they are given for the church. And also, gifts do not need to be clearly, clearly identified all the time. In other words, you don't have to say, all right, here are my three gifts, and then that's going to be the case for the rest of my life. That may not necessarily be the case, because the Spirit can work however He wants, and you can be a blessing in your church family in any given situation based on how God has gifted you. So what do we see here in some of the gifts in Romans chapter 12? First of all, we have prophecy. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. The key to understanding prophecy, in my opinion, is Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. If you want to jot that down. Prophecy, according to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, is the testimony of Jesus. That's the spirit of prophecy. See, in the Old Testament, prophecy would have been speaking God's words that he has given you directly. And the the prophetic office was specific to some people. But now in Christ, every single Christian has the opportunity to prophesy. Every single Christian has the opportunity to prophesy. 
be it a word in the testimony of Christ that you feel would be encouraging in a particular situation, or something that does come to you spontaneously. The testimony of Christ is the gift of prophecy. And some people are better at it than others. Do you have this ability to share the testimony of Christ? If so, do it. Share. Encourage people. Point them to Jesus. Because that is the the essence of New Testament prophecy. If it's serving, as verse 7 says, some people are just incredibly big in their plates in terms of what they can handle. They can serve incredibly well. They just get tasks done. Serve. If it's teaching, if you are particularly suited to expositing God's word and sharing it with others, then do it. If it's encouragement, giving a word of encouragement, maybe a rebuke where needed, do it. Serve. If it's giving, some of you have the privilege of making a lot of money. Good. As 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us, let those who are rich share generously with all. I know of a family who, uh, they're multimillionaires. Um, a Christian family, multimillionaires. And what they do is they bankroll at least, at least 30 ministry apprentices a year and uh, several dozen staff workers at university campus groups. That boggles my mind, right? Because when someone graduates, they're like, all right, cool, time to, time to come up with new ones. Okay, who needs to be supported, right? We'll support them. But that's a way in which they use their gift of generosity, and they give. Now, you might say, well, James, no, 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 that's, that's just their secular job. That's not a spiritual gift. Well, we have to be careful with making that distinction so clear. Because God's spirit can work however he wants, and the gift of God's grace is also seen in the world. But the spirit has also brought that family to Christ, and they can bless their church with that money. And so I think that that counts as a gift. It's for them, sorry, excuse me, it's to them, but it's for the church. They have a particular gift and ability to serve generously. And some people, as verse 8 has, it's leading, leadership, right? A particular way of directing people and organizing people. And Paul says, do it diligently. And finally here, to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is not a comprehensive list. And it's not meant to be. You're not meant to look at this and go, I'm 1, 3, and 7. I don't know what that refers to, by the way, 1, 3, and 7, right? But that's not what you're meant to do. Because we're meant to work this out as a community. Every member has a part to play, from prophesying to teaching and from encouragement to giving. We, are all have, we all have gifts that are given for the benefit and upbuilding of God's people. And so let me ask you right now. Have you thought about how you can serve? Have you given your thoughts and your prayers, and even conversations with your leaders about how you can be a blessing to those around you. Because the truth is, you belong to each other. And so, seek to do so, and play that self out. Play it out. Love and serve, and do it well. But I also need to say at this point, that we in the church, and I'll talk more about this in a bit, have a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy of gifts. Because what happens is that people who are up front get a lot of praise and a lot of attention. And some of us who do not go up front a lot or teach a lot may feel like we are not mature or we are not faithful or we are not good enough. 
As verse 3 says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Do not feel arrogant, but also don't feel like you're any lesser because every member has a part to play and you are valuable. It doesn't make sense to look at a brother or a sister who is serving God amazingly in one way and saying, I wish I was like that person. God, why can't I be like that person? It's as insane as Saul was with David. Saul seeing the blessing of God on David's life and saying, God, how dare you? How dare you bless that person? How dare you use that person to serve your people? We each have a part to play. And there is no place for arrogance. The question is, how are you going to glorify God? How are you going to give yourself to God? Not how is someone else giving themselves to God? But come with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this was the second passage that was read for us. And in this particular book, some, some scholars think that 1 Thessalonians was the first of Paul's letters that was written to Christians. And you can read about the Thessalonian church in Acts chapter 17. But read with me from verse 1, please. Because Paul was writing to these Christians in a context where they were suffering. And he'd only known them for about three weeks. But he wrote this letter, and let's see what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. By the way, that was in Acts chapter 16, right? So one chapter before in Acts. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. Paul gave his service in order to please God. Paul knows that he's been saved by grace, but he's been saved for faithful service. He did, he did it without any impure motives, without any error, without any desire to deceive or to manipulate people. Why do you serve? Southwest Evangelical Church, do you serve out of obligation? Out of a a desire to possess power, a desire to receive the praise of your family, your peers, and for your self-satisfaction, or because you're in uni and you have a lot of time and you've got nothing better to do. That's not love. That's entertainment. That's self-gain. That's selfishness. It's duty rather than love. I love musos. I appreciate Christians who serve in music. I really do. And I, I wish that I had more opportunities to encourage musos. But I remember in 2013, I was at a praise night. I was speaking at this praise night. And I arrived early to see the musicians uh, practicing. I remember you know, sitting in a seat, just kind of going through uh, the pre preaching on Romans uh, chapter 8. And I noticed that the leader of the band was quite agitated. Something wasn't right. It may have been the speaker system, it might have been, you know, the drummer wasn't doing something. Oh, Beck, you're great, right? But the drummer at the time might have not been doing the right thing. I'm, I'm not sure. In any case, I was sitting there, and at some point I heard him pop. Absolutely pop and blow up, and he shouted in anger, Come on! This is my night! I was shocked. 
I was completely shocked. Like, what? This is you. What are you talking about? Now, look, I understand that we can get very frustrated and heated and annoyed when you're in a high stress environment and maybe you're practicing before something. And I know this guy, by the way. I know he has a sincere and genuine love for Christ. But he was so caught up with wanting to do a good job that he made it all about him. And the band suffered. I wonder how many of us have been guilty of frustration or annoyance or anger or envy during service because we make it about us rather than about pleasing God. Do we care more about the approval of men and women than the approval of God? Because the truth is that Christian service, as we see from Paul, is modeled by a desire to please God, working faithfully for the spread of the gospel. It's a big calling, but it frees us from trying to work for the approval of humans. We don't, we don't seek the approval of humans. We seek the approval of God. We seek the conversion and the transformation of humans, but not their approval. So be like Paul and give yourself to God to please him. And what might that mean? Well, part of it just means obeying God's word in how you serve. But also, finally, point four here, it means giving yourself out of love and not selfishness. Give yourself out of love and not selfishness. You see, I have always found 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 such a strange passage, especially with the environment that I grew up in. So I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but the church I did go to um, when I was a bit younger, I stopped going when I was nine, there was a very corporate, hierarchical, figurehead model of ministry. If I tried to speak to the minister directly, calling him his name, I'll be rebuked. You have to address him as pastor. And yet, what do we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? We see family language. I don't know if you caught it. It's family language. See, Paul tells the Thessalonians in verse 8 that he shared the gospel with them out of love, but then in verse 7, he refers to himself and his companions as like young children among the Thessalonians, referring to their innocence. And yet in the same verse, verse 7, he calls himself a nursing mother, caring for her children. I don't know if you think of your ministers as nursing mothers, caring for their children. Okay? Don't look at Pete, right? <laughs> and in verse 11, though, he also refers to himself as a father, encouraging, spurring on the Thessalonians in the faith. The language choices here are deliberate. He's like a child in that he was innocent. He's a nursing mother in that he cared for them and shared his life. He's like a father in that he comforted, encouraged, and urged the Thessalonians to live lives worthy of the gospel. Paul's love meant that he was a family member who gave himself out of love for his people. He really loved them. Do you really love the people you are serving? Do you enjoy serving, but, you know what, feel like as soon as it involves talking to people, I'm not going to serve anymore. Maybe that's why so many people like doing back-end. Or perhaps you, by the way, we love back-end people, right? <laughs> it's not everyone who does back-end. 
Some people are just good at PowerPoint, right, and doing SoundDesk. Perhaps you like interacting with people as long as it means talking about everything except rebuking them. Because you feel like that might ruin the relationship. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that this is not how Christian service should be. We are to love people and give them the gospel, share our lives, care about them, and be innocent in our motivations. We're meant to do this because this is what Christ did for us. You know, there are a lot of ministries out there that do seek to nurture and care for the people whom they are serving. But there are also ministries that do not care for the people whom they are serving and say it is not our responsibility to care for you that way. It is unfathomable to the Apostle Paul that there would ever be a Christian minister or ministry that says, you just work here, we don't need to care about you. That's someone else's responsibility. That is a worldly ministry, not a Christian ministry, regardless of the fruit that comes from it. And there are Christian leaders and ministries that will seek to include you and use you to achieve their ends, but have no broader interest in committing to caring for you and making sure that you are taken care of and don't stretch yourself too thin. You should stay far away from these ministries because they are worldly and after you serve with them, they will make you feel used and underappreciated and unwilling to continue serving. Now, we should recognize that when we serve as Christians, we should do so in a way that seeks to love and include those and care for them and encourage them in the faith. That's what Christian ministry looks like. Now, points one and three have been vertically directed. And points two and four have been horizontally directed. We are to give ourselves to God in order to please him, but we're also to give ourselves to our sisters and brothers out of love. And just like the cross, everyone looking up for a second, if you get rid of the vertical beam, the horizontal falls down. There is a direction that comes first. You're meant to get the first one right. Give yourself to God in order to please him, and then the horizontal can stand This is the order that we do things. And so, remembering God's mercy, give yourselves first to God and then to other people. So let's apply some of these things we've seen quickly to two particular sections. Firstly, Christian service counters consumer culture. So yesterday we were looking at consumerism. And one of the things we see in consumer culture is that in consumer culture, your loyalties are only loosely kept, right? You you only subscribe to a brand as long as it's done something for you recently. And it disappoints us if it doesn't. And if it does disappoint us, we cut and run and we turn back, uh, sorry, turn away and we never look back, right? And unfortunately, this can affect the way we see church and service. For example, have some of you been attending church for a while but unwilling to commit? Do you visit a church and then judge it based on the music or the sermon, church shopping? It's unfortunate that that is a phrase. How can you judge a church by going once and listening to the music and then the sermon and then thinking that you can cast a judgment on a whole family of people that have been meeting weekly for years? What does that say about us? And that only makes sense in a consumer culture. If I came to your church on a Sunday, I would still have no clear way of discerning 
what it's like to be a member of the family. You cannot judge a church because a church is a family. You can't just come in and do that. But some of you who may have been attending a church for years are still unwilling to commit. Perhaps you're just waiting for something to disappoint you because you know that as soon as that happens, you'll turn and never come back. And this may be the reason that you don't serve at this church, even though you've been at this young adults group for a while. But as we've seen in scripture, every member has a role to play. And you need to commit to a family with whom you can belong to and whom you belong to. In a real sense, we counter consumer culture by loving. Because think about what loving is, right? It's drawing near to another through service. Isn't that the essence of going against consumer culture? Just keeping a detachment and saying my loyalty to you is only loosely kept? Instead of seeing our interactions in church in terms of what can you do for me, we need to see it in terms of what can I do for us? What can I do for us? But it also affects our personal relationships. I think it's a terrible thing that we talk about investing in relationships. Now, I want to be clear. If you continue using the word investing, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But just think for a second about what that word means, investing in relationships. What, are we expecting some capital return, right? Uh, I'm going to give a lot, and if this person doesn't return it, it wasn't worth it. Because unfortunately, that's how a lot of us see friendships. And the reason why we get, a, get so hurt is because you feel like you've given so much to a friendship, and the other person hasn't returned it. If that happens, what are you going to do? Are you going to cut and run? Because the investment wasn't worth it. As God's people, that's not how we should treat people. It's not how we should treat others. We are to love without expectation. God's people are called to be devoted to one another, hospitable, committed. But finally then, Christian service is not another outlet for careerism. You see, we have to be careful with perceiving Christian service in the church in the way that our world sees jobs and promotions. Because what, what makes sense in a job setting? In a job setting, you would go, okay, what does the, the next year look like and what are my options for growth? How can I make an impact in this place? What does it look like for me in the future? And if you stay in the same position for two or three or four years, you're stagnant. You're not going anywhere. You're not advancing. I think I need something different. That's the natural thought that comes from a job. And that makes sense in a job, not in the church. It makes sense in careers, but not in a church. You see, in a church setting, we should not try and prove ourselves in order to gain more power. It's not always about the next thing, the next role, the next position. It's not always about whatever the, what I think is the goal I want to be promoted to and I need to figure out my four steps to get there. That is not what we do in church. That is not how we are meant to relate with one another because it means that you won't truly be serving the people that you are with in any given time and place. I know people that have done youth ministry because they idolized it. I would never do Sunday school ministry. Youth ministry is where it's at. So I'm going to 
first welcome. Then I'll do the back end. And then maybe I'll pray up front and show how eloquent I am. And then maybe I'll get asked to youth lead. That's a careerist mindset. No, as God's people, every person has a part to play. We are a family that faithfully serves one another. And if that means that for the next 30, 40 years, you will get to church whenever you're rusted, to fold outlines, stack chairs, click a PowerPoint, speak to people before church and after church, that is faithful service. That is faithful service. And you are still glorifying God. You are still glorifying God. Be very careful about bringing your worldly assumptions into church. And I know that as young adults, this might be hard to understand, but for some of you, this is extremely relevant because you're in a work setting now and you understand that mindset. You know, there's a joke, but it's actually been shown to be true that most Gen Z people, these are people who don't remember where they were when 9-11 happened. I hope you're not lolling at (laughs) 9-11. Sorry, I forgot my train of thought there. It's been shown that most millennials, within nine months, if they don't feel like they're making an impact, they will leave the job. What about you with church? You know, it's very normal in church settings to see university students committing to many ministries, seven camps a year, and then maybe struggling a bit with uni. But still, they're committed to church service, right? But then what happens is that they graduate. They start a job. And they stop serving altogether. Now, I know there are a lot of reasons that could be behind this. In fact, I think that if a worker can make it to Sunday, uh, to Sunday service, church, and the community group, that's already doing very well. But why is it that some people who are so fired up about service in university completely stop serving when they work or start working or maybe get married? That's, not, that's another issue. Why is that? When our whole life is meant to be given in service to God. We shouldn't be pulling back from service altogether. You see, friends, I suspect that one of the reasons is that for a lot of university students, church was just a ladder, and then now they're in the real corporate environment or a real work environment. Now they have another ladder. I reached the top. I was a youth leader. I've done my time. What does that even mean, I've done my time? Some of you have heard that before. I've heard that about beach missions. I was talking to a guy, and he's like, I think I've done my time here. I'm like, how long have you been in this beach mission? Three years. I'm like, do you know that people used to stay at beach missions for 30, 40 years? You've done your time? What does that even mean? This is not a career. This is a family. And as young adults, I need to implore you, remember this for the rest of your life, because as soon as you graduate, you will have more money than you know what to do with, and you will have less time than you know what to spend on. You have to prioritize what matters. And so, let's finish off this weekend. What have we seen? We've seen that love is a desire to draw near to another and serve them. And what we've seen today is that you worship what you love. And so, how are you loving your brothers and sisters through reconciliation and forgiveness? How are you going to love your family and your church and your sisters and brothers in Christ through giving the rest of your life? 
And how are you going to serve, giving yourself to God and giving yourself to his people? Whatever that may mean, regardless of the cost, because we have been saved to worship. Whatever that may mean, can I encourage you, SWEC, to hold nothing back, because Jesus gave you everything, that you would be rich, that you would be forgiven. He died for us, that we might live for him. And that is what we are called to do with the entirety of our lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. We thank you so much that in him we do have life, and in him we do have assurance, and in him we do have a secure identity. Father, we pray that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly to you, And whatever that may mean, as hard as that may be, because you have not withheld anything from us, we pray that we would give our whole lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.